<clears throat> Welcome everyone to the Radical Reverend Show. And boy, do we have a show for you today. So exciting. I mean, look at the times we live in. How can it not be? Um, and I'm delighted to be joined by uh, two real activists. We've got Anna Lippman here from Surge, and that's showing up for racial justice, but we all know them as Surge, S-U-R-J, just so you know. And uh, Samira Boulay, who's been on the show before, her doctors for defunding police. Uh, so uh, similar groups, slightly different uh, in approach, but I'm gonna talk. Uh, start with you, um, Anna, and, and ask you, so what's Surge about? What do you do and what do you hope to get done? Um, so Surge, showing up for racial justice, is a group of um, mostly white people who believe that us as white people have a stake in seeing a better world for everyone and that our humanity as white people is deeply entangled in the humanity of everyone else. Um, and so because of that, we very much try to um, you know, support uh, racial justice activism, um, you know, queer femme groups, basically like any um, sort of like um, thing that's happening in Toronto or the GTA where like um, basically like marginalized people are um, having a hard time with our lovely little system of authority and um, general Canada fun. Um, so yeah, we really try to just kind of um, bring in our, our cousins, you know, and uh, get them to show up better when Samir asks us. <laughs> so, and, and I should say, Anna is also a PhD uh, candidate at York in sociology. And Samir, um, uh, you're from uh, Doctors for Defunding Police. Uh, and, and, and essentially, you know, speaking as someone from the BIPOC community, um, you know, what's, what's your approach now to defunding? Why doctors? Yeah. 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 So um, thank you for having us again. Um, always a great time being here. So doctors for defunding police, our thesis, we work with Surge a lot. Like Surge is amazing. There's groups like this on the ground everywhere. They're doing the work that is really trying to help the people who are most vulnerable on the ground. Our approach is a little bit different. We came out of George Floyd, 2020, everything that was going on. And the thing with us was we were all like, I wouldn't say activists, advocates within our own spaces, individually as doctors or healthcare professionals. So I work with mostly the black community. I was the president of black medical students. Um, we had Nahid with the, uh, the homelessness. We had Nanki with the, uh, H, uh, HIV, everything like that. So everyone had different groups of people that they kind of like work with. And what we thought was, hey, all of our patients or all of the population that we're working with have similar problems when it comes to policing, the, the how they function in society, safety in the justice system. And a lot of the times, some of the issues that these people were having and the trust that they were having with us, like they were scared of us, was because of the systems we were bringing them in. And I'm psychiatry also. So like, we are the most tied with the police. So anytime someone has a form one, we can take away your rights, we can do anything like that. And those type of things have to have a level of like, like there's heaviness to it, right? And we have to understand the gravity when we do these things. And there wasn't that before whatsoever because the voices of the people who were most police were never at the table whatsoever. So the thesis between doctors for, for defunding police is people listen to doctors for no reason. People should not listen to their doctors the way they 
do currently. We are not smarter than anybody. We're not better than anybody. We're just humans who take in information and should be able to explain it and educate and talk to people. What we're saying now is, hey, we want to take our platform that we have just in society and try to give it to the people who are most impacted. Our thesis is also that like healthcare shouldn't end when you like step outside our office. It should be like your healthcare is your total humanity, your education, your family. If you're depressed, if you have suicidality, if you're, if anything is happening in your communities, shouldn't we as healthcare providers at least try to see if we could help? Because a lot of the times what we're seeing now is we can't help our patients to be completely honest. I sit across so many patients, I can't help. Like, it's like, I can do everything for you to get you as okay with the system and the things around you as possible. But the things that will actually make you healthy and better, the education, the healthcare, the purpose, the job opportunities, the, the being able to control your life isn't something that they have. And obviously that would drive you crazy. Yeah, uh, here on Radical Reverend Show, if you're just tuning in and we're speaking to us, you know, Anna from Surge, um, and that is standing up for racial justice, and also Samir from Doctors for Defunding Police. Um, similar ends here. Um, um, and Samir, I'm going to like, and, and I should say, um, hey, you know, just uh, like a big shout out to Samir, who is writing his final boards on Monday, and will be a doctor doctor then. <laughs> so we look forward to that. Uh, certainly an incredible addition to um, uh, medicine and particularly psychiatry that boy, oh boy needs you. Um, so we've talked about the social determinants of health of Samir before, um, housing, people don't have it. They're dying on our streets, literally, um, uh, you know, uh, healthcare beyond the OHIP funded healthcare. So, I mean, now people, you know, finally we're getting free rapid tests or so they say, but, you know, by and large, people are paying for their pharmaceuticals, um, paying for dental care, paying for this, that, and the other thing. So not so universally accessible healthcare. Um, mm -hmm. And then, of course, we've got the justice system, which, um, you know, uh, definitely comes down on the bodies of Black and Indigenous and people of color far more than on white people. <laughs> so we've got all of that going on. No wonder you feel like throwing your hands up, especially in uh, psychiatry. Um, I want to talk about, um, there's something that, you know, it's coming up, the, the city budget is coming up too. I got to vote on the city budget. The police have asked for more money. And just to, in case listeners don't know about this, um, I mean, Surge has asked for defunding of the police of 50%. Um, and this is very much in line with Black Lives Matter. Everything that we're talking about here is in line with Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, and, and coming out of that, many American cities, for example, did, in fact, uh, cut police budgets. Um, not so here in Toronto. Uh, in Toronto, um, we actually gave the police more money. We gave them money for body cams. And even though some councillors put forward a call for you know, a modest decrease, very modest, um, uh, that didn't that got voted down. Uh, so here we are again, more money they're asking for. And, um, but they have started, and Samir, this is why I'm going to ask you about it, mm -hmm. mental health pilots in yes. the city, um, <laughs> in some communities. Um, I mean, I'll just start by saying they seem grossly underfunded. Yes. Um, but talk about these mental health pilots in light of this extra 25 million for the Toronto. Yes, I'll be happy to go into it because um, so basically what they're saying the pilot is, is I think they have four regions um, and they're partnering with groups that we talk about that are currently doing amazing work in the community right now. So they picked 
some great groups, right? Taibu in the East End, we know they're amazing with Black Health. Gernstein's Crisis Center, we know what they do with the suicide crisis, every, they're amazing. But these groups have been doing this stuff to an extent for a very long time. And the issue they've always had was resources. What we've been saying and what we've said forever, like the last 30 years, 30, 40 years of like policy within Canada is something we're not like actually analyzing. We've taken money that could have gone like our OECD beds, just for an example. Well, for in the 90s, we had about seven per hundred. Like we were one of the top in the, in the world. Now we're in the bottom. We have a country that is not investing in their people and then expecting them to have better outcome. I don't know. I, I really don't know where we go from here. So, yeah. So, so you don't have a lot of hope for these pilot projects? I, mean, I, I Okay, we know they work. Like, well, what are we talking about pilot projects? Put the funding in and let's make it work. We know this for a fact. Policing and mental health crises specifically are not, like, they do not have to go together whatsoever. We have groups of trained, years of training in social work, harm reduction, like, really, like, de-escalation. We go to, like, I go into homes whatever you want to call crack dens, whatever you call them people are. We do that with our own bodies because we understand what's going on. The fear that the police bring into these situations when they don't understand these people is ridiculous. It's like, um, it's like the idea of the drug war, right? Like if you, um, if we're saying drugs aren't like, it's not illegal in of itself. Like it's not a moral failing. If you're doing drugs, you're not a criminal for doing the drugs. Usually it's the trauma response and you're trying to cope with something then why do we send police to solve all of these issues, right? We're, we're just necessitating the need for the police over and over. You know, I want to say one thing. There's a doctor that had a fun little rant about how, you know what, I don't think defunding the police is too radical because, you know, um, we, we need the state to have a monopoly on violence. And if the state doesn't have a monopoly on violence, then we don't know these other radical groups will come up. But we don't know what's going to happen. No one was talking about who has the monopoly on violence within our country. We're talking about the people that do have the monopoly on violence currently not having any ramifications for any of their actions whatsoever. That is ridiculous right now. And we have subsets of the populations, which guess they're minorities, they're the subset group, they're not the majority, that because they're so marginalized and unheard, these issues don't come to terms. So I've heard it in front like the vice dean of UFT medicine, I've sat in front of him and told him how disgusting my opinions of him and policing are. Because when I tell him why my communities are, when Regis Krenchisi says, can happen, we had a meeting, they go off about how it's the policing's right, it's their fault, what are you talking about? We don't know enough, all this. I'm talking about, do you understand these communities have been over-policed forever and this is the only way they get help? We need to change everything around how we view community safety. Policing can't be the only tool. Like the, the, the way we do medicine, every doctor has to specialize for 10 to 15 years in every single special, in subsets of health. Like if I wanna work on dermatology, your finger, I have to go years of fellowships to do that. These cops get 26 weeks of training sometimes, and then they're just put straight on the road with a gun and you're, you're in charge of everything here. That's crazy. And until we get to that fundamental root of like, okay, the training is ridiculous. The standards are ridiculous. What they're asked to do is also ridiculous. I agree. What they're asked to do in communities, domestic violence, violence, uh, sexual assault, uh, anything that happens, they have to be on guard. So yes, obviously there's going to be some problems there. Let's make it easier for them. Let's literally make it easier for them. Let's take away all of their tasks. They only deal with violence and let's go from there. 
And uh, it, it, we're speaking here to uh, Samir Boulay from uh, Doctors for Defunding the Police and also Anna Lipman from Surge, um, Standing Up for Racial Justice. And, you know, it, it's interesting because police as first responders, they have a lot of mental health issues too, right? So this is compounding it. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I want to go back to you, Anna, um, as well, um, and, and and talk about Surge's demand to defund by 50%. And you did this campaign, which I woke up to one day in uh, in what I like to call the Socialist Republic of Parkdale High Park. But, um, uh, but anyway, so it walked down the street and saw all these posters, you know, um, and but I mean, you were doing this right across. You blanketed Toronto for all councillors, but you, you but you were also putting up these posters in areas like ours where the councillor did vote at least to defund the police a little bit. What's the idea of like blanketing it? Because I'm not disagreeing with you. I but I mean, uh, I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was really good because it brings the it highlights the uh, issue for everyone right across Toronto. But, um, but talk about that campaign and talk about something that you did as well, which is the phone kind of zap, the phone uh, zap to counselors. Talk about your tactics. Totally. Um, I just have to start by saying it, it was not all me. We have a lovely large group of uh, real keen volunteers and we uh, work with lots of other movement partners in the city. Um, but you know, it's almost exactly what Samir said, like, if we defund the police by 50% and, like, actually start putting that money into places like getting Samir a really good job where he's a boss of the psychiatry department or, like, getting Gerstein more money, like, then, you know, and I've seen this myself as a social worker, like, when you call for someone for mental health supports, the police automatically have to come. And if that's triggering for you to begin with, like I've literally seen people in the middle of like a suicide crisis, like get arrested because the police freaked them out. They like freaked out. And then that counts as like assault of a police officer, right? Um, so it's just, it's a terrible system that we have. And we at Surge really believe that like, yes, absolutely. Like us white people, we have it a little bit better when it comes to the cops. Like, I, I don't think they're gonna, you know, harm me if I call them to my house, fingers crossed. Um, but at the end of the day, like we need to completely reimagine community safety all over the city and that means everyone so even you know if you're living in a very nice house in Forest Hill like you've probably heard your neighbors like have a domestic violence incident at some point and like the thing is these issues of safety impact us all and at the end of the day I think it's just like Samir said like you know, 26 weeks of training versus like what social workers and doctors and everyone else, like I have like eight certificates and a vulnerable like sector check before I even get to like say hello to a client. Um, so why are we putting the police in all these situations where one, like 
if the police come after a domestic violence incident, they're going to take a report. Maybe they'll do something. The system, our laws aren't really built to support uh, like women and, you know, queer, femme, whatever, who like deal with abuse, right? And so really we want everyone in Toronto to recognize that like, we are all in this together. Like our safety is your safety. And even though sometimes that might look different from white people, for white people, like I've certainly heard as a child, like the police are your friend, the police keep you safe, which is not what you hear, you know, in Jane and Finch, right? But um, at the end of the day, like the police are not our friends. The police are not very well trained. The police have a lot of power and guns. And, you know, me and Samir, like we've walked into places where it's scary and like the cops should be there with guns. And if you just treat people like people, like you don't, it's not violent. It's this system, it's this punitive system that criminalizes poverty and systemic injustice that is making us think we need the police when actually if we took all that money out and gave it to like real community supports, built housing, got people food, made, you know, addiction services like actually accessible and not scary. Um, like we wouldn't need the police. Community safety, having good, strong, healthy communities makes police obsolete, um, even for white people. And that is why, you know, Surge is, um, you know, doing so much about the defunding. We did do a zap the other day where we called counselors and uh demanded defunding for police and we made in one hour 116 calls and 193 emails because people know like this is not a good society and we need to change it we just need to get the people at the top with the power to like start listening to uh people like Samir who actually know what they're talking about, you know? <laughs> Thanks, Anna. I'm speaking here to Anna uh, from Surge and Samir from Doctors for Defunding uh, the Police. Um, uh, and, and so what is, I, I mean, I just, we keep bumping our head against this wall, right? Like, what is the problem? Um, we had Chris Montam come talk at our church. We had a whole series on anti-racism at our church. Um, she was the final one. She said she's never received more calls into her office than about defunding the police um, uh, and at post, you know, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, of course, huge demonstrations, et cetera. And still, um, still is the case that most people that went to depute before city council on the budget went with this issue in mind. And yet, um, and one of the other speakers was John Sewell, who talked, he's been doing this since the 1970s, for heaven's sakes, turning up at the police board and blah, 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 um, you know, uh, bringing up stats and writing books. And yet nothing is changing. Samir, what is the problem here? I mean, I can weigh in as a former politician a little bit, because <laughs> I think I know some of the answer. But, um, talk, but like, what is, what is the problem? Because this is this is every councillor's people speaking. It's not just downtown Toronto, you know, people think that way. Um, so, so what's, what's the, what's, why can't we break through here? This is, 
the million dollar question, right? Why can't we break through on an issue that on its merits, if you were to read line by line what we're asking for and what we want to do, the studies back it up, there's historical examples of it working. There's clearly this isn't working. So like, if you just look at this system, people are not doing well. The question is just who's being impacted? Who's on the bottom end of this system, right? Like, just look at them. And it's like, I'm from West End of Toronto, the Rexdale community. My parents are refugees around a bunch of immigrants. No one cares what's going on there. I can tell you how many people are getting shot at and just anything was happening. And the police weren't stopping that. The police were making it worse. The police were planting drugs and guns in some of the times when we were going through stuff. There was so many situations that we knew that, okay, let's, let me give you a great example. I'm from the West End, the Rexdale-ish area where Doug Ford is actually from my district, like directly from my district with that. That's how it works. And growing up, we all knew about his family's history, about like dealing hashish out of like Royal York Plaza, like dealing drugs. And to us, it was whatever. That's, dealing drugs is not... A, to me, it shouldn't be a crime. I don't think it's that, like, that serious of an issue. But to conservatives and the politicians and the great <laughs> people over there, it, it's wrong. It's so wrong. You can't be good if you're doing any of that. Yet we go from that type of person, from that type of society and all the way there to what we have here where he's so pro-police and so against the system. And it's just, it's not real. It's fake, right? Like the idea is Whoever's in power and whoever controls society, money, right? Whoever's giving the, all the money, spending the money, they control the messaging that's getting out here. If if it was to if they were to go into those communities and really look on the ground as to why there's a drug problem, why there's a crime problem, why these things keep happening at a rate that seems to be kind of fluctuating, right? Like it's not getting better, it's not getting, like it's not good. It's the social determinants of health, is the issues that they knew because. It's not like you didn't know this. That's all I want to put out there. Because like in 1989, just for one example, the federal government unanimously came together and said they will end child poverty by the year 2000. They understood that child poverty, poor conditions, like when people are deprived of the ability to have dignity in their lives, it leads to a lot of bad things. That's kind of obvious, even though our families work hard. Like even though some of the kids end up in bad places and everything, if you see what their parents are doing, working two, three, four jobs, never being home. The kids are raising other children. That, that creates an environment where things can happen. They're susceptible to things happening constantly. And I don't know, we have so many scientific studies on like things called ACEs, like adverse childhood experiences, trauma. And the more of them you have, like sexual, physical, neglect, emotional, the more of them you have, the more susceptible you are to extremely bad outcomes like it's, it's exponential like 30 year lifespan difference like depression suicide uh diabetes everything because of the conditions you have because of the trauma and we just ignore it because we we don't think those communities matter as much politically because they don't vote as much or you gerrymandered their districts like my district is very colored is in Doug Ford's district which is very white so they can they vote more and white it's kind of funny actually and then we don't talk about how Doug Ford like reduced all of the Toronto city districts like the second he got in to make it even worse to even get representation on the ground we need to go to localism right the idea should be people on the ground knowing what's going on in their communities trying to help out on like no more of the ideology or like the broad strokes like we can do better. There's people doing horribly in our communities right now due to poverty, violence, mental health, domestic abuse, sexual violence, like things that we can solve. Let's just start there and see what happens. I mean, you know, uh, speaking as a speaking here, uh, by the way, as the radical reverend Sherry Genovo, uh, with Anna Lipman from Surge uh, and Samir Boulay from Doctors for Defunding the Police uh, on a common theme here, which is 
we can do better than our current policing model. And yet somehow um, we've known that for a long, long time, decades um, at least, uh, brought home in a big way by Black Lives Matter and of course the murder of George Floyd and all of that, that was completely, you know, it was global in response really um, to, we could do better than our current model of policing. Um, uh, also, of course, I was a politician for 11 years there at Queen's Park. And, uh, and I can tell you the police are there you know, um, big time in terms of lobbying. Um, there's no question about it. And uh, they make their voices heard uh, largely too. And there's this kind of knee-jerk conservative, but not only conservative reaction um, when we start talking about police budgets, because every, you know, in politics, every their police are there. You know who they are. You do drive-alongs. You know, like they're everywhere. Um, and um, and. Uh, and there's various bodies. I mean, they have, you know, the police services board and others. These are these are bodies that almost rubber stamp these calls for more funding. And it's very difficult for regular citizens, I mean, to break through, especially citizens of, of color. And of course they point to, well, we had we had a black police chief, you know, we have black members of the force. You go to New York, it's mainly black police, right? You know, so I mean, this this, so this is their, they come back with this, right? Um, and, and so, you know, it's very knee jerk, especially for conservative politicians, but not only to say, well, you know, we need them, you know, crime is, is bad, even though we know crime's been going down consistently <laughs> year to year to year. Um, so it's very difficult to break through. Um, anyway, uh, I, I mean, here we, we live in an interesting time because we're coming up to the city budget. If something doesn't happen here, um, I don't know. I mean, we will keep on keeping on. There's no question about that. But but it's very disconcerting when councillors and MPPs and MPs vote against the wishes of their own constituents on this issue, which is really what it's coming down to now. I want to segue here on the Radical Reverend Show. We're talking um, talking about policing to uh, something that's on everybody's mind and that has become a global focus, which is for want of a better word, the occupation of Ottawa. Not so much in Toronto, but yeah, they're blocking streets here too. Um, yeah. um, and they're blocking, you know, the border. Um, they seem to be everywhere. Uh, and, uh, and of course it's hashtag, you know, flu trucks clan, which I thought was, you know, one of the better uh, hashtags invented lately. Um, but I mean, this presumably truckers and uh, large rigs blocking streets, calling for an end to all mandates, especially vaccine mandates, um, even though, of course, our kids have needed vaccines to get into school forever. <laughs> but anyway, OK, um, so I'm going to start with you, Samir, and talk about uh, is this just about vaccines? What is this about? <sighs> That is such a question that I will never, I think there's a lot of things going on. I think what we can clearly tell here is there are multiple factions and groups and ideologies that have kind of taken this up, right? There is a, like a genuinely like non-threatening innocent group that is a hundred percent there. That is just like, okay, we are tired of years of mandates. We are tired of, um, we don't like the, the school lockdowns or we don't like this and this. And it has inconvenienced their lives. It has destroyed a lot of small businesses. Absolutely. We have done a lot of things that have hurt a lot of people. Absolutely. And a lot of the times the mandates and the, the, 
the things that the government is telling us to do is not backed by science. Absolutely. So yes, I would be, I have friends that are still, I'm going to preface it, that are still not vaccinated now, like absolutely not vaccinated. And they probably will not because they do not trust the information from their government. They believe that they can risk it with their susceptibilities, even though they know the data, they know the stats, they know that everyone in the hospital right now in the ICU is most likely unvaccinated at this time. So they, they know the vaccines work, but they don't trust the government as something separate. So this is where we have a whole conundrum, right? On top of that, we have the right-wing elements. So we definitely know the, the Nazi flags, the Confederate flags. It seems to be like the police and the RCMP seem to be like very much like some former members from some studies, things that were coming out. They seem to be very coordinated and very much like understanding how to, to have supply lines that are like very much reinforced. And like during the week, you'll see there's only a couple hundred people but during the weekends, it'll swell to thousand, a couple thousand. So they kind of have like a thing that's going on, at least for now. <sighs> the, the question with them and the question with all of this is just how does it end? Right. Like, what is the goal here? Right. Some people are talking about openly like overthrowing the government uh, openly like that is openly happening, clearly. And that's not something we can do. when We just had an election a couple months ago, even though like I don't like Trudeau or whatever. Like, I'm not here to overthrow him like that. That's not what democracy does. The question being just the, the way I want to take this actually to be very honest is this should show us like it's it's a picture of how there is no uniform response to different situations that are happening around our country, right? The police are not like with doctors, we have standardization, right? If you go to any hospital, you should get the same treatment for the same condition in theory that's happening with the police. It's kind of depends on like whatever they're feeling or like whoever's there and like whatever information they have because we all knew this Ottawa protest. We knew it was happening. They were so open about it. They were they were cheering about. It. I knew my friends were talking about it and wanting to go and everything. So I'm like, oh shit, what's happening? Freedom, cool, whatever. But now to say that okay, we need more police because Ottawa couldn't handle it with their 1,500 police force and their 360 million dollar budget and. Toronto did, but just by blocking off some roads, like, do you, um, do you see what these things are? Like policing in of itself isn't that hard per se, if we know what we're doing, right? There has to be more diplomacy and understanding of what is actually going on with these groups. Violence isn't going to work with these groups. Clearly when the, the police, all that, when, when violence is the only tool you have, you're, you're like a hammer. And when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? If the police only have violence as a tool, that's all that they're going to use. So what we're trying to say is absolutely. I think um, in some cases you will need to use violence and force. We're not crazy about that. But if you see the percentage of crimes that actually are violent or violent in nature, I think it's like 4%. It's all in the single digits always. So the other crime, the other stuff that the police aren't really trained to the intelligence stuff, the really understanding of the societies and how people interact and how to disarm and de-escalate. Like that's a high level thing that maybe they, they're trained for when they go to like CSIS eventually and all the way up. But why, why do we have to wait for all of that? Let's, let's get on the ground, let's get this working. And I think um, if we talk to more people and have a more open conversation, I feel like there's a lot of shutting out of a lot of people, uh, we might do better. And the media sucks. The media has a big role in this. So absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, they were getting free airtime 24-7. I, I like to compare it to, you know, if Indigenous came and blocked, if Black Lives Matter um, blocked uh, Parliament Hill and the, how long would that go on for? I mean, uh, you know, homeless can't even set up tents. 
in a park uh, without having a, you know, an army basically come and take them down. Um, and it was very clear what was happening as you're, you're right. So, I mean, whatever happened to like, if I parked, if we parked illegally on my street, you'd get a ticket and you get towed eventually. Like what is, what, what's so difficult about ticketing and towing? I mean, one of the things I have to say is, you know, kind of useful that the police do is kind of traffic management, right? Like, you know, so that people don't kill each other on the roads and, and where's traffic management? Where's just the fleet of tow trucks taking these rigs away? Um, the other thing too, that I think is really important to point out is this is not a working class uprising, right? <laughs> this is, these are 100,000 plus rigs and these are people who can take weeks off work. And these are people who are getting funded millions and millions of dollars, whether it's GoFundMe who shut them down, thank you, but or this new weird Christian whatever site um, that's now getting millions of dollars. I mean, this is big money. Big money is behind this. And it's big right wing money. There's no question. I mean, um, where this money is coming from. And there's no question that the police are responding to it completely differently than they would if this was, you know, Black Lives Matter, Indigenous, environmental, even anything other demonstration. And so is the press. So that's where we're at. We're at. Um, Anna, way in here. What do you think of the, you know, the flu trucks clan? <laughs> um, so first, let's be clear. I think it's something like 90% of actual Canadian truckers are vaccinated and their job conditions are so exploitative. They don't have the weeks to take off for this protest. So when we're talking about, you know, the flu truck clan, it, it's some truckers that are upset, but it's also like a large group of people who are upset. And like, I get it. I want my gym to be open. I want to go back to school. But like, you know, um, it's just like Samir said, like, we're not gonna overthrow the government and then tomorrow have like some fantastic new system right and um you know I personally kind of suspect that like most of the police in Ottawa honestly they probably took the week off to join the rally um just a personal opinion but like let's think about Toronto like when they came here firstly it was the police that were blocking the streets even before and after the truckers got here. And they said they were doing it for like the safety of healthcare workers. But we know so many nurses are taking TTC to work. And so who is this really protecting when you block the streets? And then on top of that, like, you know, I won't lie, I take the streetcar a lot. So like every time I get off the streetcar, I fear for my life and my safety, but we don't actually need police to like deal with traffic. If we had better top-down infrastructure, like they do in Europe where they have like roundabouts and like cars can't just speed everywhere, right? And so, you know, I think, you know, my brother is unvaccinated um, and I love him and he's unvaccinated because Exactly. He doesn't trust the government. And I don't trust the government either, but I am triple vaccinated. So I get it. But 
you know, the reason that they didn't stay in Toronto is because the people of Toronto, like, organized in their communities to keep them out, right? And so we need to stop looking at the police and at the government as, like, the solution to these things. Because as long as they have the money and the power and the cottages to just go chill out, like, they are not in, invested in seeing fundamental change like the people on the ground are, right? And that's why, like, you know, we need to gather our people and make these demands until Doug Ford and whoever's the new police chief, like, actually listen to us and take off their guns and, I don't know, maybe go to university and get, like, a criminology degree. Now, just to be fair, a lot of the cops, you know, have degrees now because, you know, it's a pretty competitive field. Um, speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show, uh, Sherry Genova is your host, and we're speaking uh, to Anna Lippman from Surge, uh, and that's uh, standing up for racial justice, and Samir uh, Bulle uh, for Doctors for Defunding the Police. And just to agree with you both, I mean, clearly policing and, I mean, clearly the government or policing hasn't hasn't responded in a way that keeps this kind of thing out, right? So as a, the mayor from, I think, it, where was he with mayor from Sarnia said, you know, this is economic terrorism. <laughs> you know, if it was anybody else doing it, um, they'd be gone, right? Um, so, so this is, you know, this is going on and nobody seems really all that upset by it in government or policing and to do anything about it as they would be if it were a different group. And it's very clear uh, white supremacy in action, I think, in a very real way. Um, on the vaccination front, yeah, it is. It, it's interesting, and um, and this distrust. Um, I mean, partly it's yeah. I mean, but this is like science, right? This is this is facts, <laughs> facts over fiction. But I mean, clearly, the, and this speaks to the educational system again. One of the one of the systems that's been completely attacked. Um, um, and so I'm going to come back to, to you and the difference, the racial difference in education in our, in our system. Ooh. I mean, yeah, exactly. Because Oh, yeah, I that's mean, a big topic. Yeah, because <laughs> I mean, I, I just kind of on Twitter fell down this rabbit hole defending, you know, educators uh, and people who are working in schools and parents who were just freaking out about the unsafety that their kids and their staff are walking into. And nobody seemed to be watching their back. Um, and, and then on top of it, you get, you know, Lecce attacking teachers now, you know, straight out, basically painting them as a bunch of criminals that, you know, um, clearly this is a move to privatize, but it has been for years where, you know, usually white people with money take their kids out, send them to private school, smaller classes, safer, better education, blah, blah, blah. Um, we, which has, of course, been going on in the States for forever. Um, yeah. Um, so, Samir, talk about the difference. I can. I, education is my, I think education is actually where we should focus, like, completely to actually fix a lot of the issues we see here. So I, just again, preface where I come from, TDSB, so West End of Toronto, Toronto District School Board. In the Toronto District School Board, uh, the study came out that 42% of all Black students are suspended at least once by the time they graduate. My brother had the worst time. He was like thrown out like it was nothing. Um, me, the way I got through school was because I had a refugee family. I had four families living in one house and a lot of them, my uncle was an engineer, he was a taxi driver. 
my mother was a accountant who was a uh, hotel cleaner. So a lot of educated people around me not doing educated things. So I was the one they poured into all the time. So while I was getting a higher level education at home 24-7, I go to school to socialize. At school, what you would see is brand new teachers every time. So it would be new, like new, mostly white teachers who were trying to do good. A lot of them were really trying to do good in these communities, but they were out of their depth. There's 30 to 35 kids. Half of them have no like family issues. They're acting out ADHD undiagnosed. Like it's so many traumas undiagnosed. And you're trying to teach these kids. There's no learning that was going on really up until like my eighth grade. I had to go to a different high school in, I, in an IB program outside of my community to get a decent education where it's like, okay, now they're challenging me and I can actually learn in school and not just outside of school. Do you see how crazy that is? Like what, what kind of system is that where the kids there, because my school, they were, so I'm Dixon Grove was a school I went to for middle school. If you know about it, it was very Somalian heavy area. I'm Ethiopian background. My, my grandfather's Somalian, so we're close. If you know about that area, I can even tell you one time, the principal sat a bunch of us down and said, you bad Somalian kids, if you keep doing like this, nothing will ever happen to your family. Like there was a lot of direct, like, I guess you call it racism, whatever. And what do you think that does to little kids? whose parents don't really speak the language too well, so they're scared to come to the school. So they run away from the schools more and more. So as you go up, oh, these kids aren't here anymore. The only kids I'm with now are the Indian kids and the Asian kids who are still left, who still come from bad like communities, but their families are tight like mine. So they're able to push them. Like there are systems here that clearly lead towards success or failure, right? And it's investment. And I think the way we focus our schools, like, for example, Dixon Grove School I went to, it's a perfect example. So that area became a, ref, um, in the 90s when my parents moved there, became a refugee immigrant community. But initially, the like the west side of Toronto, like Doug Ford and the Richview is right there. It's a richer area. So I actually had a conversation with a an older, actually Jamaican Black woman who went to the same school that I did, but in the, in the early 90s. And what she described was wildly different than what I what I had she was the only black person in a place where everyone else was white and she described after school programs the best teachers small class sizes everything there and I just I, I actually was flabbergasted because it was only 20 years between when she went and I went and the, the difference in quality and the difference in the ability of the kids that went there because she said yeah the kids I went to school with they're all doing good they're doing this they're doing that and I'm telling her what's happening now she's shocked because they moved out of that community when they had money. The people that came in were more lower income. And guess what happened? It, it's a system, right? We know what happens. The cops aren't in Rosedale. They're in Rexdale for a reason, right? If you just put, give them the money and you make the society safer, you don't need the cops in every school. Like every school I went to always had a cop. Always. Always. It was very clear that the police were watching you and you need to, they need to know what's going on. Never a psychiatrist, never a nurse, never a social worker, never anything to help your families. There were CAS that were coming to the schools and taking kids without helping the families first. What? This is what we're dealing with. And when we have conversations like this system is any what humane or any way like is accurate to the facts on the ground, it's laughable. I think the conversations that we're having in Parliament Hill or uh, on the Hill on TV, especially the media, are hilarious like it's like it's like a tabloid it's like oh let's pick the most superficial topic that doesn't really matter and distracts from what's really going on and impacting the material conditions of the most people on the ground right now and causing most of the issues that we see right now because at the same time 
we're having the highest level of diseases of despair ever. Suicide crisis, the, the opioid crisis, everything is going down now. But we're kind of ignoring that. Like the, that's not an issue of a systemic problem. We're kind of focusing on little things, always getting distracted. We got to do better. And I, I, I don't like where we're going right now in, in the sense of the leaders. I think the people on the ground are getting it, but leaders got it. Something got to happen. <laughs> Thanks, Samir. Uh, Kira, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show if you just tuned in, and you missed a lot if you just tuned in, but out there in listener land, um, uh, rest assured that this will be, after you've heard it here, it'll be up at the radio station on CIUT 89.5 FM, and thank you, CIUT, um, for a bit, but then it goes on to podcast, Radical Reverend podcast, you can catch it there forever ever if you want. My guests are Samir uh, Bulle, Doctors for Defunding uh, the Police, and also Anna Lipman from uh, Standing Up for Racial Justice, or known as Surge. Anna, you, you, you put something in the chat as we were chatting um, about TDSB. You wanted to weigh in on schooling. Weigh in. Oh, um, again, like this is such a topic. Um, so I'm actually originally from the U.S. I went to six different high schools in San Francisco, um, trying to find a good education. Um, and if I wasn't white and Jewish, I would not have gotten that scholarship to that fancy uh, Jewish high school and would not be a PhD student right now, right? Um, and, you know, when we look at Toronto, there's one Afrocentric school that probably doesn't get great funding and you have to specially apply for it. And there's like one indigenous school that also probably doesn't get a lot of funding and you have to apply for it. So if you don't have like, you know, a great family like Samir does, you're really like up against a system that is so hard to navigate. And, um, you know, because our public schools are funded by like the taxes in the area and stuff like that. Like Forest Hill and other like wealthy places, like they have the tax money and those parents have the time to like join the PTA and fundraise. But like when Samir's mom is like working three jobs to support the family, even though she has like some fantastic degree, um, like, you're not gonna get the same quality of education. And that's a systemic thing, right? And, you know, it's absolutely been exacerbated by the pandemic, but let's not for a second forget. Oh, and Samir, I think my supervisor uh, did that study you uh, referenced, no big deal. Um, but let's not forget for a second that like, even before the pandemic, like Doug Ford was very, mean and punitive to TDSB teachers and said like, you don't deserve more money. You're being selfish for going on strike. Like they don't care about education because to keep us dumb is easier. And then we'll just go to the truck rally and then we'll be like, where are the police? And then Doug Ford gets to stay in office, right? Um, <laughs> so that's why, you know, we got to start from the schools and education because, like, you know, I didn't learn anything in my high school. Um, and so, like, how can we expect anyone else to do better when they're being fed this lies and propaganda, not just by the media, but 
also by their textbooks and by their teachers who are underpaid and like don't want to show up because like they don't know how to deal with like 30 traumatized children right yeah it's uh and you're talking to a kid that dropped out in grade 10 and lived on the streets of toronto so i ring with that <laughs> has always been kind of the way um but now of course it's uh, you know in astoundingly racialized like it's racist system um and uh, and as a politician, I I, I do remember uh, you know uh, within a mile of each other, two I won't mention their names, but two high schools where one was mainly Somalian kids uh, and Jamaican kids, um, and the other was mainly white kids within a mile of each other. Um, guess which school got all of the scholarships to universities funded by their alumni? you know, people who went before, guess which school um, got the new textbooks, guess which school, because schools have been so underfunded, I mean, we have literally starved our education system, um, uh, got all the fundraising happening, and, and ditto in the, in the elementary schools, one school, their fundraiser was at the old mill, and it was black tie, the others, the other elementary school was children's art in the gym, guess which raised the most money, um, so, I mean, this is our system right now um, uh, and, and dependent, on, dependent on fundraising, of course, by, by parents, which should never be the case in education. Um, so so let's, let's, we've only got, a, you know, about eight minutes left and I want to leave on an up note. <laughs> so, so Samir, let's, let's start with you. Like, okay, so you know, you're emperor for a day. <laughs> and here's something, I, I'll just shoot this into the conversation and say that any political party in this province who gets a majority government basically is emperor for their mm -hmm. four years and mm -hmm. can do anything they want. So, um, so one has every right to hold their feet to the fire and say, do, do something. Um, and that goes for all political parties. To me, the great the great uh, sadness is, you know, as an NDP here, is when the NDP has had majority governments and has behaved uh, like they're doing right now in BC, like conservatives. <laughs> They've given away that golden opportunity to make some significant changes. So uh, significant changes, healthcare and education, Samir, because that's where we, we, we see the primary uh, need for changes. Um, a few things that you'd change, what would you do? Number one, I think it's kind of, to me, I think it's because of my background, but I think it's so clear. I think unionization and really bring in like the workforce to have power and democracy within their own lives. And the thing that feeds them, your job, you should have the most say there is the most important. I grew up in like the union saved my life. I'll be very clear about that. How my family, like hotel workers, they worked in maids, but we were, had unions. So we were okay. I had braces. Like I had good teeth. I could speak a little bit better. So I looked better for interviews. It was okay. Like things like that, where we need to bring this teacher's union needs to be strong and it needs to understand the needs of everyone within their group. We need to bring these people into society. Yeah, I know it's not, they don't know what they're doing, but we need to bring those people into the society and into like the leadership table and figure out, okay, what do we need? What do we need specifically? We all know what education needs to be better, healthcare, criminal justice, everything. But what specifically and how we do it needs to be dictated by the people who are most affected by it. To me, that seems so simple, but our politics has gotten so abstract or, or it's like um, I run on like vibes and like a statement or like dollar beers or whatever. Then I get there and I'm supposed to be good at every single topic ever. 
Like that's ridiculous. My, my understanding, I'm going to psychiatry, right? I'm going to do 15 years of studying to be kind of a master in one subject. How the heck would they be able to understand any, like anything into the depth that they need to if they don't bring other people who are in the masters of their own domains and the masters of doing their own thing? I just want to... Yeah, but, but just, just, I'm just going to ju- jump in because yeah. I can just hear, I can hear a voice of a police officer saying, but we, you know, yeah. you know, we're, we're the masters and they have a police union and they're, oh, you know, okay, okay. Yeah, the police so union is different. Whatever. The police, okay. the police union is not a union. Okay. They bust other unions. That, that's literally like antithesis of a union, right? Unions have solidarity with other unions. When I was in the hotel workers union with my dad and everything, we would strike with the, the, the airport workers. We would strike with whoever is going out. That is solidarity. The police have no solidarity with anybody. So I will push back very heavily on the police union being a union. They have no one that they respond to so that I disagree. But yeah, other than that, bringing the people on the ground who are most impacted by whatever system there is to the table and understanding how we can make this a little better. And number one thing, media, 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 media. How do we disseminate information? Who gets what information and how? We have to make sure people understand and have the capacity to understand that there are complicated topics like COVID-19 is complicated. We're getting new information constantly. Omicron is different from the alpha variant that has different necessities and different things that we're learning as we go. Because the politicians make it so black and white and the media is all for clicks and money, right? The profit motive here is a problem. It leads you to disinformation. It leads you to hysteria because fear is like the emotion that people latch onto the most and they, they keeps you coming back. But what we want to say is that's unhealthy. Fear is very unhealthy. Cortisol being up your whole life is not healthy. You need to figure out ways to get around that and actually improve your life and like find love, find like emotionally stability find purpose in whatever you're doing right like money can't solve everything right that's the key to all of this so like these billionaires are depressed i see them in my office too these millionaires come to my office they are depressed too don't don't ever let them think that money is everything it's about the society and the systems you built are you able to control your environment do you feel like you're out of control if you can do better if we can let people feel like they have a voice and like they matter these anti-masker protests would never happen like these people have been I agree. There's white supremacist element in all this, but some of these people have been yelling into a void also in white rural America. Like I went to school in Hamilton. I think I have so much sympathy for them because I saw the steel mills and I saw their kids. They they had it as bad as us sometimes. It's not. It's like the race thing is bad, but Canada is very different. There's a mix here, and when you're poor and when you're at the whims of the system anywhere, it's a problem. So we need to start with the people at the least. Okay. Thank you, Samir. Anna, if you could be you know, emperor for a while, what you know, and, and you you're getting your doctorate in in, in sociology or and have done social work. What would you change? What would you change? What'd be the first um, thing? Um honestly, I would uh vote Samir for prime minister and do whatever he tells us to. I think he said it's spot on, you know. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, like Yes, there is white supremacy. Yes, like race is an issue. Absolutely, 100%. But like class, ability, education, gender, sexuality, like we are all such like multifaceted people that we need to start realizing that like we're in this together. Yo, even if I have pale skin and my grandpa like worked in a steel mill, like your fight is my fight. Um, and so uh, on Monday, I'm becoming a citizen. So Samir, you tell me when you're running um, and I will vote for you. 
<laughs> I will never run. I'll just put that out there. I will never. <laughs> well, life. he would be wasting his talents. We, we need Samir in psychiatry. We desperately need Samir in psychiatry. Um, so uh, just let him be. Just let Samir be. He's going to write his board exam on Monday. He's going he's gonna to do well. Let him be. Um, you've been listening to The Radical Reverend here, uh, and uh, it's been a joyous show. Uh, been talking about defunding the police for sure, but also everything else that's going on in our world right now. Uh, if uh, you find this interesting, please send me comments, questions, anything. I always read them. It's always fun. And ideas for shows, of course, too. And a shout out particularly to CIUT because uh, over 30 years on the air now. It's been kind of amazing. It's the last alternative radio station left in the GTA that isn't funded by big dollars. We're talking about the media. Well, guess what? Only a few people own the, own the major media now and their politics isn't our politics. So it's always good to have alternative media. Keep it coming, keep it going. Uh, until next time on the Radical Reverend Show. And thank you to, again, to Anna Lippman from Surge, uh, standing up for racial justice, and please, you know, follow them because uh, they have phone zaps and other other actions uh, routinely that you can get involved in. And also, uh, Samir Bole from Doctors for Defunding Police. Um, keep in touch with them too, especially if you're a healthcare worker. Uh, get on board with that and uh, listen. Just listen. Okay. Until next time on the Radical Reverend Show. <laughs>